classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm I'm good. Very excited to chat with you about Sister Outsider. Again, a little behind the scenes, we had some technical issues, so we're (laughs) (laughs) re-recording this episode, and there's plenty to chat about with Audrey Lord and... It's going to be fun to talk about again. I am really excited to talk about it again, again, again. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's the kind of book that lends itself really well to diving into these essays and speeches and rereading them and just talking about them. And it's, it's a good one to have to discuss again. So even though I'm mad at technology problems, I'm not, I'm not upset about talking about Lord's work. Definitely not. And yeah, you do just bring up a great point. Like this is a great book to buddy read. Just take an essay at a time, have someone to chat about with it because already like I know that I'm getting so much more out of it chatting about it with you. And I'm excited to kind of dive into some more podcasts or other people who've discussed Lord's work as well. So it definitely benefits from talking and listening after a reading of Audre Lorde. And speaking of talking and listening and rereading, this is a reread for both of us. And I'm curious to hear about your first experience reading Sister Outsider versus picking it up now. So I actually think I maybe read it early in 2020. Like I, I it wasn't that long ago, but it feels like I a remember, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I think I remember you talking about being in the middle of it on the podcast at some point, like it it was your current read or something. Yeah. Yes. And I listened to it on audio, which was great, but definitely there were just some, some challenges with, with that in terms of me and how I process, um, what I read. So I'm a visual learner. It real things stick with me much better when I see them written on the page. So while I loved listening to this, especially the speeches, which just sound so so great when read aloud really all of her writing because she's a poet it sounds great read aloud but I really appreciated going back to it a second time annotating my copy reading the essays a couple of times as as I was preparing for this that was really wonderful And, and we should say we chose a handful of essays to kind of focus on and that was nice too. How about you? When did you read this first? Oh, I think it, I mean, it's at least like four years ago, maybe even five years ago. So it's been a while since I've encountered it. And uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I picked it up probably because it was on a list of feminist books <laughs> that everyone should read. Uh, and I'm really glad that I did. I, 
I think it is interesting that you listened to it first because a lot of these are speeches. This Mm -hmm. is a collection. So essays, speeches, it's a mix of things. But I think that the speeches would be amazing to listen to, but probably listen while you have the book in front of you to take notes. I have tons of bookmarks and underlines in my copy. I felt like I was able to sink into this reread so much better than reading it the first time. On my first read, it was my first encounter with Audre Lorde's work. I was just sort of getting to know what she was talking about, sort of know the themes of her work, and just sort of orient myself to the text. Upon a reread, I was really able to reflect and dig deeper and understand it better and then sort of um, take the application and think about my own life and also just think about all of the amazing Black feminist texts that I've read since reading Sister Outsider and to see the uh, connections and crossovers between books was a really great experience. So this is definitely one that I highly recommend rereading if if you've already read it and you're listening to this episode. Pick it up again at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much more I got out of it my second time, but also so much more that I I realized, oh, I could go a lot deeper here and I could learn a lot more here and study a lot more here. So it was one of those rereads where I both understood more afterwards, but also I more understood the things that I'm still missing and still grappling with and still working on. And I that was a really great experience. Mm, That's a really good way to put it. If you are listening to this episode and you haven't read Sister Outsider yet, I I think that's a good way to go. I think that you can definitely listen to this episode first, come to the text later. And this isn't a novel. This is a work of... See, it's funny to even say a work of nonfiction. It's a collection of nonfiction. And so there aren't spoilers or anything. (laughs) And if you are... Coming to Audre Lorde's work for the first time, here's a little bit of info about her because she's amazing. And she describes herself um, historically as a Black lesbian mother warrior poet. And that is her label. That's the job description that she preferred. And I love that. Audre Lorde was also a librarian and a teacher writer, of course, and her experiences as a Black woman in the white world of academia specifically did so much to inform her life and her work. Another classic of hers, I I would certainly consider it a classic, is The Cancer Journals. And so that's on my to-be-read list. I've only read excerpts from The Cancer Journals, but She is considered, I mean, one of the mothers of Black feminist theory, although we're going to talk about how she takes issue with being a theorist versus being a poet. I love that. And of course, she cares what she's called and what she's known as and how she defines herself because she really cares about language and definition. And speaking of, I think a good way to get us started in the in this work is to define intersectionality which isn't a word she uses in this text however much of what she is 
getting at and and driving towards we now think of as intersectionality. Yeah, and intersectionality is typically brought up hand-in-hand with feminist theory when we're talking about critical theory or sociology. It's typically in the same conversation. And Audre Lorde is definitely considered, I don't know, inventor sounds funny, but she's definitely one of the core poets and thinkers to put words to intersectionality. So we have some quotes specifically from her work to define intersectionality, um, especially in the context of the way we're going to talk about it with Sister Outsider. In her speech, in her comments, in The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, she mentions difference a lot. And that's sort of the word she uses in place of intersectionality. Um, She talks about the difference of race, sexuality, class, and age, and how the absence of those considerations weaken feminist discussion of the personal and the political, how it's important to look at how race and class and sexuality and all of our identities intersect and cross over each other to create power, to diminish power, to create privilege. And really what Lord is saying uh, in this essay and in this collection is that those differences are where true power lies, especially when we're talking about social justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like all of those ideas that she's she's getting at. And, and I think it's also important that she talks about identifying difference and thinking outside of the power structures as they exist now is how we can, and this is a quote, define and seek a world in which we can all flourish. And I think that is a huge part of intersectionality too, is looking at the intersections of of your own, one's own identity, recognizing the aspects of your identity that are privileged, those that are marginalized, and then lifting everyone up, not just seeking out the, especially like for for us as white women, not just seeking out equality in the areas that we feel marginalized. Mm-hmm. Um, Audre Lorde does a really good job of exemplifying this, and she even mentions at some point you know, I am lesbian and black and those things make a difference in my life. And she says, but if I don't um, step back and also look at class and examine how people who are poorer than I am or um, who are experiencing other issues in their lives if I don't do that, then I'm not seeing the full picture of humanity and I'm not I, I'm not doing the work mm-hmm. that I am meant to do. And so she definitely sets an amazing example of looking at nuance of identity and really putting language to to those things, even though, like we said, she's not using intersectionality, but she is really 
bringing it to the forefront here. She's living it. Yeah. Absolutely. I I so appreciated how she kept bringing in ability and also talking about women in third world countries, which is not a term we necessarily use anywhere, but, but in impoverished countries and developing mm-hmm. nations. And it makes sense, right? She is specifically writing as a poet and sort of resisting the label of being an academic, even though she is in an academic space. And she's really emphasizing the importance of lived experience, the importance of her feelings, the importance of her hopes and dreams. And she's really emphasizing the importance of those things over the thinking of these institutions that she's Mm -hmm. speaking at and trying to sort of get out of that frame of thinking. Yeah. And and as an English major who took a lot of classes about theory, critical theory, and wrote a lot of papers with a feminist lens, I think this kind of text is so important to bring into classrooms and to just encounter on one's own even I think for me, at least, my experience learning about feminist theory was extremely theoretical and, you know, mostly applied to literature. And it's we didn't really talk in my classes as much about how do you live out these ideals and how do you behave in a way that is intersectional and feminist. Yeah. So especially what you were saying about learning feminist theory in the English classroom, although I am certainly grateful to have encountered it, it almost just feels like uh, learning feminism in that way. I feel like it's such a disservice to students, partly because most of the texts that it was applied to were very white. So it was centered around white feminism. But also, like you said, it it wasn't something that pulled you into action. Mm-hmm. It very much went hand in hand with like, oh, well, these are texts of the past. And so these feminist issues are in the past. But this book is so timely and feels pressing and imminent and present when you read it. And really feels like so much more of a call to action than just like the the dried up theory that we were experiencing in the English classroom. Oh, totally. And I mean, I think with maybe with high schoolers, even though they're not doing like really deep nerdy theory, there is some benefit of introducing students to feminist theory and saying, you're just applying this to a book. I'm not telling you what to think or what mm-hmm. to do or how to vote, but I want you to like take this question and and apply it to the story. That's great. That's like a safe space. It's a great introduction. But <laughs> that isn't where academia or people should stay. And I feel like I was allowed to stay in that realm for too long. And yeah, I really appreciate Lord's call in and call out and just the way she explores how her own life and personal experiences led her to these views and beliefs. And it it really, these essays really reminded me too that feminism is, and I, I think ought to be 
political and more of an action. And I think we can tend to, in our contemporary moment, you know, we we ask celebrities and we ask people all the time, are you a feminist? And it's not really a yes or no question. Like there are, there are feminist actions and there are ways to behave that prop up patriarchy. And I really like that reminder because I, I think that sometimes we can tend to think, well, I'm a woman and a feminist, therefore my actions are inherently feminist. And Lord reminds us that that's not quite true. Mm-hmm. And then gets intersectionality into the mix and specifically addresses Black feminism and the issues that are central to her as a Black woman and as a Black lesbian also, and really shows and highlights where action is an essential part of feminism. Um, There's one passage that I love, and I marked where she says... um, Those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. And I think that you could sub feminism in there as well Mm. because it is tied to survival. She's talking about living in a patriarchal society and surviving in that world. It really reminds me of Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall, which is a book that I recommended on our episode on Their Eyes Were Watching God. Amazing feminist text. But that book really talks about survival as a feminist issue, about food insecurity, about abuse and violence, about really important literal life and death issues that feminists should be paying attention to and making part of their platform and part of their political actions. And that's so much of what Lord is getting at here as well, is that it's not just, I'm a woman, so like you said, everything I do is feminist, but that our identities as women are differences as women. Um, and she doesn't address trans women in here it's from this this text is from the 70s so you know i don't i don't know that she would have but i think we can as modern readers know that we're incorporating that when lord says women she's talking about a variety of femme experiences but that our our differences and intersections should be a call to action and that we should be taking things from theory and from academia and making them real and visceral and not just active, but also emotional. Mm. Yeah, that seems like a good place to transition into talking a little bit about her essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, where she really gets into language and emotions and why she is a poet. I just, I, I really love that essay. I just, I really love too the way she defines poetry as the symbiotic connection between words and emotions. I love that. Yeah, it's a broad definition of poetry. When she's saying poetry is not a luxury, it's not just 
literally writing poems, right? It's creativity and emotion and dreaming and creating. I'm just going to read a little section from this. So Lord says, for women, then poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of the light within which we predicate our hopes and dreams towards survival and change, first made into language, then into idea, then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. The farthest horizons of our hopes and fears are cobbled by our poems, carved from the rock experiences of our daily lives. And gosh, that is beautiful. And yeah, it's just, I mean, it is the perfect example of like you were talking about. Poetry is not a luxury. This essay, when Lord is saying we and our, she is specifically saying Black women. I can read that paragraph and really definitely connect to it on some level, but then also appreciate that Lord is trying to decenter the white Eurocentric idea of poetry and give power to Black women's poetry and their specific creative power outside of the sort of white idea of what poetry means. Mm -hmm. I, I really love what she says in here about naming that passage you read in, included that giving words to things and i i think it's a very white western patriarchal view that the ability to name things gives a person power like you discover quote unquote a new land and you name it and it is yours and like there's just or, you know, even like you get married and your wife takes your name and that's like all of that is has been with us a long time. But she is reworking that. And the the naming of feelings builds strength and grants freedom and anchors emotions. And it's this ancient collective power to give words, give names to the, the things we experience. I just love that resistance of she's still saying naming is powerful, but in a completely different way than Western patriarchal thought has tended towards. Mm -hmm. When I read this essay, it reminds me of Langston Hughes' poem, uh, My Soul Grows Deep Like the Rivers. Mm -hmm. She's talking about this ancient connection and this almost core of humanity that that women can access through dreams and emotion uh, and their specific lived experiences. And there's something so beautiful about that. She also says there are no new ideas. There are only new ways of making them felt. They're just new ways of saying it. And Maybe some people might find that frustrating, but it's also comforting in some ways. And the way that Lord talks about language, I just find so fascinating. Though, I mean, I think it's something we talk about today, how thinking, you don't know things until you put them into words. Mm-hmm. And that's yes. what she is talking about. Yes, I know. I, I, I love that. I feel like she's so ahead of her time because now neuroscientists are saying that but Audre Lorde the poet she knew decades ahead (laughs) yes 
Absolutely. And then, so just one more thing about language that I was thinking about as I was reading. When I was reading Poetry is Not a Luxury and then continuing through her essays and sort of thinking about the importance of the words we use, I was thinking about the timelessness of that sentiment and thinking specifically about topics like defund the police and the conversations that people have been having around the way that movements and the way that things are named. Reading Lord's words about the significance of naming just felt really important to me when I am either engaging in those conversations or listening to them and just was a a modern connection that made Sister Outsider feel so alive. This text just feels like it's a living text. It really, really does. And I think that in in large part is what makes it a classic. There are so many mm-hmm. things about this that make it a classic, but the fact that one of the ways we like to define classics here is a text that never stops saying what it has to say. This collection really fits into that. It's speaking to us in our present moment and will likely continue to speak to us in different ways. This really feels like a book I could return to again and again, and it would say something a little bit new to me each time. Yeah, and it is it is an expansive work, especially since it's a collection. So some of these are like notes from A Trip to Russia is straight from her journals, and then she put it together from there. Essays and then speeches. It's expansive and her audience is shifting. And so that means that so many different readers can come to this text and get so many different things out of it. I can think of several of my Black bookworm friends who think of this as just such a comfort read because they feel seen and sort of mothered by it and just love reading this book for for that comfort factor. And then when I am reading some of these speeches, I really feel specifically called out as a, a white woman because her audience for some of those speeches was largely white women in academia. And so... As I'm reading Black feminist texts, something that I'm constantly trying to do is decenter myself as I'm reading and think, who is this meant for? And then try my best to learn in in an emotional way that doesn't just like academically distance myself from the text and make the issues that are being addressed all mental for me, but that makes them sort of visceral and that touch my soul rather than just sort of like, oh, well, I read this and I'm, I'm a smarter white person now. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Um, I don't know if I'm, you know, explaining that in the best way, but I, I just think that that's important to say when we as two white women are discussing and approaching a black feminist text. Absolutely. And it's the Master's Tools essay, at least of the the three we really focused on, that she is directly addressing white 
women in academia Mm -hmm. um, because she was only one of two black women who was invited to participate in a conference, which is another one of those moments where I was like, did she write this this Mm -hmm. year? I mean, so relevant now. I feel like I'm very much still thinking through and feeling through the idea that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house and what that means for for me as a white woman and where I do things and behave in ways and think things that uphold white privilege and white supremacy and patriarchy and how I can think outside of the master's tools. I have no answer for that right now, but it's something that I, I think... I mean, going into a new year, it's kind of something I want to keep thinking about and revisiting in as a reread of this essay, maybe a few times, and then also continuing additional reading. Yeah, this essay has so many passages marked uh, in my book. I, I couldn't stop underlining One passage that I will definitely keep coming back to, Lord says, we hear that it is the task of women of color to educate white women in the face of tremendous resistance as to our existence, our differences, our relative roles, and our joint survival. This is a diversion of energies and a tragic repetition of racist patriarchal thought. And so even as I'm saying, as a white woman, I learned so much from mm-hmm. Audre Lorde. I'm facing that resistance of, well, this book doesn't exist to teach me. Mm-hmm. And so the difference between reading this book to learn versus, you know, reading this book to be a better community member, to be spurred into action, it's it's definitely making me think about the way that I approach reading Black feminist texts and the way that I might see myself as learning from them. It it is okay to hold a couple of things at once. I think Audre Lorde is really good at that and finding the nuance in it, which I found really inspiring. So I can say like I got so much out of this essay and I, I learned a lot and I'm taking a lot away from it and yet still appreciate that this, this book This collection is specifically for Black women and for their liberation for themselves. Hmm. Um, And and to hold that tension is something that I'm definitely working on and learning to do. Same. Same for me. She kind of tugs me in to call me me in and call me out. and And then I kind of shift to the margins again. As a as a white reader, and I, I just it, it was a really fascinating reading experience. The way she she did that. Part of why we chose this book for a January text specifically is that it is empowering and definitely sets a, a tone for the new year of paying attention and listening and really loving our communities. And 2020 has been so rough, specifically for communities of color, specifically for low-income areas and individuals. And just intersectionality is so important when we reflect on 2020 and who was impacted the most. 
And as we move forward into 2021, it's not like those problems go away. And so this text and this reread feels incredibly vital and important for the current moment. Absolutely. In a way that, I mean, was intentional because we were like, this is going to be a really empowering read, but a way that I didn't realize until now. Yeah, I I agree. And I'm I'm really glad we read we read this at the end of 2020 and, and mm-hmm. this episode will come out at the the first week of 2021. But I read it while I was starting to think about some of my reading goals for the upcoming year and it was the text was inspirational in that regard as well and and once again I I feel like a huge takeaway is that reading isn't enough there needs to be mm-hmm. action but I do think some of the themes and questions brought up in this are going to shape what I pick up for my own reading in the new year. And I think some of our our pairings will get to some of those ideas as well and, and where, where Lord is still influencing many writers. Absolutely. I'm really excited to dive into these pairings. Do you want to talk about your first one right away? Yes. I know you love this one too. (laughs) I do. I think that if we had like a little wall of authors, like in our proverbial novel pairings office, don't you think that this author would be like right up there with Elizabeth Acevedo? Yes. This might be our third pairing of Jacqueline Woodson. I don't know. We'll have to go back and count, but (laughs) (laughs) I immediately thought of her while reading this. She's a Black queer poet. And there were a couple I was thinking of. I will throw out Red at the Bone as a bonus pairing. We paired that with Beloved, but Lord also writes about Black motherhood quite a bit. And and Red at the Bone is touching on, on many of the same themes. But I went with Brown Girl Dreaming because that just touches on the poetry element and how poetry is vital and urgent and not a luxury. So it is a middle grade memoir and it has won every prestigious award that a book can win, including the the National Book Award for Young People. Woodson grew up between New York and South Carolina, kind of going back and forth in the in the late 1960s and 70s. And so she was kind of always in between two worlds, in a sense, in her Southern roots and then her New York family. And she found solace in writing poetry and and naming her experiences and defining her experiences and putting, putting language to what she was feeling. And that is exactly what poetry is not a luxury, is saying poetry is and does, especially for Black women. So this book is just, it's so stunning. It's a novel in verse, as much of Woodson's middle grade is. And the the poems are, are urgent and emotional, and she writes a child's voice extremely well. I mean, it's her memoir, so she's thinking back on her own, her own life. So, I mean, I just recommend this book to pretty much everyone. It's so good. Should definitely be in the classroom. I think it is in many places. So Brown Girl Dreaming, because 
poetry is not a luxury, and Jacqueline Woodson knows that too. That's such a good pairing. And it reminded me of something that I thought about while reading Sister Outsider. Just like we, when we did our episode on Their Eyes Were Watching God, and we were like, oh my goodness, we can see so many echoes of Janie Crawford, and we can see so many echoes of Hurston. I think that when you read modern Black feminist texts from like the last six years, maybe, I'm thinking Mm -hmm. like Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. I was thinking about Emily Bernard's collection of essays as I was reading this. Hood Feminism, which I brought up, you can just hear the echoes of Audre Lorde. And it's always so rewarding and incredible to sort of go back to one of those core texts. And I think that that's another argument for reading Sister Outsider if people haven't picked it up already. Oh, absolutely. That's such a great point. So speaking of core Black feminist texts, the only sort of theory slash somewhat academic kind of book that I will pair today is How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. And this is edited by Kianga Yamahata Taylor, but... It's written by the collective. So she edited it, but there are several authors. This is the collective sort of making a statement on who they are, but also reflecting on where they've been. So the Combahee River Collective is a Black feminist organization that came about in the 60s and 70s as an anti-racist organization and really developed out of the anti-racist and women's liberation movements of the 60s and 70s. So we get sort of the reflection on the legacy of this collective, but then also how are their contributions affecting today's events and today's struggles. So this is very much in line with Audre Lorde. I I'm pretty sure she's mentioned within the first few pages. Um, But if you are reading Black feminist theory and Black feminist texts, I think this is definitely one to pick up. Um, It's some of them, some of the chapters here are interviews. There's the introduction that is sort of the collective statement. The interviews are really interesting to read you'll see lots of connections across history, lots of modern connections. And I just think that it is a fabulous little book to pick up. It is little. I mean that. It's like really short. It's under 200 pages, maybe like 170 something. Um, And it is from Haymarket Press and they publish some really incredible social justice works. So that is how we get free. It's a really beautiful little volume and we will as always, have our pairings linked in the show notes for you. So my next pairing is a novel. It's a multi-generational family saga. It's called A Girl is a Body of Water by Jennifer Nansabuga McCumbi. This just came out in 2020. It's on the Aspen Words list. And it's just, it's such a beautiful story. So It's set in Uganda, and it's about 12-year-old Karabo. She feels that there is something within her that she can't put a name to and that she is uncomfortable with, something kind of dark. And she's just not sure 
what's going on. It, it makes her feel like she's almost two selves and she's trying to reconcile that. She also really wants to know who her mother is. She has been raised by her grandmother and her many aunts, and she she really just needs to know about her her mother. And so she starts spending some time with a local witch, and she really wants this woman to tell her who her mother is. But the woman also is trying to kind of help Carabo figure out who Carabo is and who she wants to be. And on this journey, Carabo learns about the first woman, which is a kind of mythical, philosophical, independent, original state that used to belong to all women, but has been lost in this legend. And I just could not get that book this book out of my head while I was reading this passage from Poetry is Not a Luxury. These places of possibility within ourselves are dark because they are ancient and hidden. They have survived and grown strong through that darkness. Within these deep places, each one of us holds an incredible reserve of creativity and power, of unexamined and unrecorded emotion and feeling. The woman's place of power within each of us is neither white nor surface. It is dark, it is ancient, and it is deep. And I really think A Girl is a Body of Water is a work of fiction that is embodying that feeling and that philosophy. And oh, it's just so good. That is why I'm pairing A Girl is a Body of Water. It sounds beautiful. I think you would really like it. I'm definitely adding it to my TBR. (laughs) I have some fiction for us here as well. And this is a book that I recently listened to on Libro FM. If you want a Libro FM subscription, we're not doing an ad today, but we will have links because they're fabulous. And I'm so glad that I listened to this book through them. It is You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson. And this book is triumphant and such a perfect examination of intersectionality and even mentions intersectionality um, in a variety of ways that I think make the concept super accessible to young readers. But also I just got so much out of reading this as an adult and it made my heart soar. So You Should See Me in a Crown is about Liz Lighty. And she is a black girl and band geek living in a small town in Indiana. And her small town is obsessed with prom. It is a huge deal. There's like this big competition to be prom king and queen in the town. And she basically wants nothing to do with that. But when she doesn't get the financial aid that she needs in order to go to her dream college, She ends up signing on to prom court because there's a $10,000 scholarship on the line. And so through this process of participating in this experience, we get to see the ways in which Liz sees herself as an outsider in her community, where she sees different ways that she also fits in. She also sort of gets to know this other girl on prom court 
and starts to develop a relationship with her. But Liz is really concerned about the optics of their relationship. Liz isn't necessarily out, but she's also not super shy about her sexual identity, but she doesn't want it to impact her scholarship. And so we have a queer Black protagonist who is experiencing all of these intersections of her life in a high school setting where it's so apparent and where kids are so keenly aware of race and class and sexuality and the way that their identities impact them. There's one specific line, and I don't think that I'm quoting this exactly because I was listening to the audiobook, so I couldn't bookmark it and underline it, but she basically, Liz, says something about sort of feeling like an outsider in her own life because she's not represented in this small town. She is the only Black girl. She is the only queer girl in her class, and she just says, I feel like an outsider in my own story here. And it's just so good. And I think it's just such a triumphant book. I loved the protagonist, but I think that it connects to Sister Outsider for so many reasons, partly because of all of the quite direct commentary on intersectionality. But I mean, the core conflict is Liz constantly saying this is difficult for me specifically because of my identities. And she wants people to recognize that. And it's just so well-written. It's a debut novel that I just can't even believe is a debut novel because it's just so good. I think that Liz Lighty could read some Audre Lorde and really find some <laughs> <laughs> find some comfort and power in her. I still need to read that one. Oh my gosh, it's so good. I, I do recommend the audio. Okay. All right. Good to know. All right. Um, My final pairing is more of a person than a book, but I will recommend a specific book. She's the poet Nikki Giovanni, who is a Black American poet and activist and just a poet I really, really love. I'm going to recommend her newest. All of her works are great. And of course, like a collected works edition is a great way to go. But what I like about this, the newest one, Make Me Rain, is its poems and prose, which I think pairs really nicely with Audre Lorde at some of her activist essays, her theories, her her personal writing, and her poetry. She writes a lot about Black motherhood, about Black love. Her poems are extremely empowering, but they're also quite political. She really, much like Audre Lorde, blends the personal and the political and the emotional and the intellectual. And so I, I think her her work really connects well with Lorde's. Her writing has been described as, quote, epitomizing the defiant, unapologetically political, unabashedly Afrocentric ethos. And That just really reminded me of the foreword that I read for Sister Outsider by Mahogany Brown. Mahogany Brown says, I reckon Audre Lorde perfected the art of audacity. And I think Nikki Giovanni is 
working in the same vein in her audacious poems and prose. So you can Google Nikki Giovanni and read a bunch of her poetry, but I do think that any of her collections are wonderful to pick up and make me rain if you like a mix of poetry and prose. I actually gave this book to my grandma for Christmas. So I think a wide range of readers could could really enjoy it. Mm, that's such a good recommendation. I love Nikki Giovanni. She's awesome. All right. Uh, my last pairing here is I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. And I feel like this is a good pairing for a sister outsider because where Audre Lorde is talking quite a bit about being a Black woman in academia, Austin Channing Brown is specifically addressing being a Black woman in the vastly white evangelical church. And I see a lot of parallels there. And Austin Channing Brown really writes about her personal experiences. She just has such a strong voice. I mean, she's an excellent speaker as well. Pardon me as I'm flipping pages. But I just think that this is a really powerful account where she is holding the church accountable. And I think that you could get a lot out of this, even if you aren't connected to the evangelical church at all, because so much of what Brown talks about can be applied in any space, in mm. the business space, in the classroom. Just like what Lord is talking about in academia could be applied in any space. A quote that I have marked in Brown's book reminded me so much of Lord's essay or keynote presentation, I'm sorry, her keynote presentation, The Uses of Anger, Women Responding to Racism. Austin Channing Brown says, anger is not inherently destructive. My anger can be a force for good. My anger can be creative and imaginative, seeing a better world that doesn't yet exist. It can fuel a righteous movement toward justice and freedom. Hmm. And I love that, specifically the part about anger being creative and imaginative. I just can like hear Audre Lorde cheering for that mm-hmm. line. And so... Yeah, I I really liked Austin Channing Brown's book. This is one that I would like to reread soon. I think if you have read Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper, you definitely should pick up I'm Still Here by Austin Channing Brown next and hear some echoes of Audre Lorde. I'm planning to listen to, to that book on audio in the new year. I'm really looking forward to it. I'll be curious to hear what you think, especially of the audiobook version. Yeah. All right, Chelsea. Well, before we sign off, do you have a pick of the week? Something extra to pair with Sister Outsider? I do. I subscribe to a newsletter that I really love. It is called Anti-Racism Daily, and it is a daily newsletter. I do not read it every day. I have to say, that is just not part of my absolute daily routine, but they have a roundup at the end of the week. And often I will save the daily installments and then sort of sit down at the end of the week and take in several at once. That is the way that I read it. But I know a lot of people who really do sit down every day, take in this newsletter. The Anti-Racism Daily newsletter is has a bunch of contributors. Most of them are Black women, but there are just a diverse array of 
people contributing to the newsletter, and it addresses really specific topics connected to anti-racism. So there was um, one recently that was about racism in art that I Mm -hmm. found really fascinating, and it just really opens my eyes to different areas where maybe I'm not necessarily thinking about anti-racism. You know, maybe some areas that aren't necessarily as obvious, but of course, racism touches everything. So I am really grateful for the education that the contributors are doing over at Anti-Racism Daily, and I just think of it as one of my reading experiences that contributes to my anti-racism learning. It doesn't always have to be books. I love books, but I'm really enjoying newsletters and this format for my learning. So the Anti-Racism Daily, highly recommend. Do you have a pick of the week, Sarah? I have two, so I'm going to talk about them super quickly. So first, um, Tracy Thomas, the host of The Stacks, she was a guest over here a few episodes back. She has two episodes discussing the book White Fragility with the hosts of the Lady Gang podcast, three three white women, and Tracy's podcast is is part of their their network. And so one of the episodes is on the Lady Gang's podcast feed. The other is on the Stacks podcast feed. They're both excellent and they build on each other. And, and the way Lord talked about how black women are expected to educate white women really reminded me of their conversation and just how generous Tracy was with her time to educate all of us listeners. So highly recommend that. And then also this actually just popped to mind. (laughs) There was a terrible Wall Street Journal article. I don't know if you read it, Chelsea, like in defense of the canon and how. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Anyways, (laughs) it was that article was in opposition to this group of wonderful women of color who are on Twitter and they use the hashtag disrupt texts and they provide all of these wonderful resources and ideas for how to bring more authors of color, uh, classics by authors of color, contemporary YA, just all kinds of great diverse texts into the, the classroom. And you can just follow the hashtag disrupt texts and get tons of info and resources from these wonderful educators. Even if you're not a teacher, it's a great hashtag to follow to get book recommendations. So, and I actually got to take a couple workshops with one of the founders, Julia Torres, and she's phenomenal. So it's just, it's a great free resource, the hashtag disrupt texts on Twitter. I don't want to link to the um, Wall Street Journal article specifically, (laughs) but if we can find some counter commentary and explanation, we can definitely put that in the show notes. We'll do a little searching for that. That sounds good. Well, I'm really excited to hear from our listeners if they either read Sister Outsider or maybe are going to pick it up after listening to this episode. So follow us over on Novel Pairings Pod. That's at Novel Pairings Pod on Instagram and tag us. Let us know that you listened. Let us know what you're reading. And we just love to hear from you over there. 
Another thing that you can do to support the podcast is writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We have totally seen the difference when people are consistently writing reviews. It does absolutely impact and affect our podcast in the charts. So please consider leaving a quick one-sentence review about why you love novel pairings. And we are so, so grateful. Thank you to Michelle Timmons for her assistance and to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next week, we'll be back with an installment of Short Story Club discussing The Hunter's Wife by Anthony Doerr. You can find a link to that short story in our show notes. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. Thank you.